is Palm Sunday, um, which is the beginning of, of Holy Week. The Holy Week is, uh, starts with Palm Sunday, ends with uh, Resurrection Sunday. It's extremely important to the gospel writers. Uh, at least for, the, for three of the gospel writers, about a third of the gospel is dedicated to this one week. Out of all the events in the life, three and a half years of ministry in Jesus, a third of the gospel is dedicated to this one week. And in the gospel of John, half of it, half of the gospel of John is dedicated to this one week. Yeah, there's a lot of content on it. So it begins today with Palm Sunday. It's recorded in all four of the gospels. And on this day, on Palm Sunday, Jesus, by riding into Jerusalem, reveals that he is to become the king. But he's going to become a king in a new way. He didn't come to conquer a land. He came to conquer the human heart. Amen? So this morning, what we're going to do is when it happens, when this happens... Palm Sunday, this, this holy, it happens in a certain context. It happens in the context of Passover. And that's not an accident. It is on purpose. And I'm hoping this morning we can look at just a little bit of seeing how these overlap. And God purposely chose this moment to reveal his Passover lamb. And in doing this morning, as we, as we look at, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of requirements in Passover. And one of those requirements, because Passover is also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so there is the removing of leaven that has to happen through that week. And what I hope we see by the end is that he comes to, to not just remove unleavened bread, but remove the leaven from our hearts. And so that's where we're going to go. That's where I'm hoping to go this morning as we go through this. And so the, the ancient context of, of Palm Sunday, Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the ancient context is Passover. Now, by the way, Pastor Zeke mentioned this. On Wednesday night, we are having a Passover Seder. It is a Messianic se- uh, Passover Seder. If you've never participated in one, uh, let us know. It would be a good idea to let Pastor Zeke know so we can get a, a pretty good count. On, on We're never really good at counting how many people come. But... Uh, but you know what? We believe in God multiplying, so that's all right. <laughs> we want you to come. It is an amazing time to see the sum. I'm going to show a little of the overlap this morning. You will see much more of it. When I took the time to actually read and study the feast, I used to think, well, the feast, they, those were Old Testament Jewish things. That's nice. I'm just interested in Jesus. He's New Testament. When I took the time to stop and study the feast, oh, my goodness, they are God's divine appointments. Every single one of them wasn't simply commemorating something in the past. It was pointing to something in the future. When I looked and saw how much they are about my Savior and not only what he has done, what he is doing and what he will do, I saw how much of a travesty it was I went so many years without understanding. So in that context... We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna bring Passover and Holy Week over top of each other just a little bit this morning. Wednesday night we'll do it some more. We're going to do it again on Good Friday, so we want to invite you out for that. And, and, uh, uh, and, and to, today, this morning, I'm hoping we get to this concept of Jesus wants to remove the leaven from our hearts. All right, so Passover, the ancient context. It's the defining moment in ancient Israel. In, in Passover, it was, a, it was a covenant made in blood. The blood of a pure 
innocent lamb. All who would, by faith, come under the covering of that blood could escape judgment. So let's go back to Exodus for a moment. Just look at a few verses. Verse 5. The lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goat. So the first thing we see, it's a spotless, it's a pure lamb. Verse 7, they shall take some of the blood and they shall put it on the two doorposts of the house and on the lentil of the house in which they eat it. And jumping down to verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And then he says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, notice, where are they? They're in the house. Where's the blood? On the outside. Who sees the blood? God sees the blood. They have to trust in faith that God's seeing the blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over, hence the name Passover, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. For Israel, Passover was a revolution. Egypt came under judgment. Why? For unbelief and rebellion. Now, what's, what we need to understand about this is we need to understand the Egyptians could take the blood of the lamb and put it on their houses as well. They didn't have to go through judgment. They chose to go through judgment. Why? Because they did not believe the word of God. In spite of all the plagues, in spite of everything they'd seen, they chose to not believe God's word. Judgment came because we don't believe, not because God wants to bring it on us. Passover was the demoralization of the hardened heart of a tyrant king. You had a tyrant king who had hardened his heart, and it was Passover that broke him. Passover judged the gods of Egypt. It was Passover that said, your gods, your idols are impotent, they have no power. Passover delivered literally an entire nation out of slavery. Passover established Israel as the kingdom under God on earth. So this is the context. It is in this context that Jesus rides into Jerusalem as God's Passover lamb. What does he want to do? He wants to bring a new revolution. He wants to deliver the world from the slavery of sin and death. He's not seeking to create a new nation. He's creating to seek a new way to be human. Did you catch that? So in this context, in the fullness of time, in God's divine appointment, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He's God's Passover land. He's giving us this new revolution. He's delivering us out. Now, how do we see the context? This is kind of cool. It tells us this on Passover, that on the 10th day of the first month, choose a spotless lamb. So the Israelites were to go out on the 10th day of the first month. This is, here it is in, in Exodus chapter 12. It says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It was called Aviv. Later it was called Nisan. And it shall be the first month of the year. So in the very beginning of the year, tell all the congregation of Israel that what day? The 10th day. Now keep that in your mind. Remember that 10th day. Okay? We're going to get to it. Tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for every household. Now, 
Knowing that for a minute, set that aside, all four Gospels tell us something. All four Gospels testify that Jesus died on a Friday. It's in all four. It's also in the Didache. It's in Josephus. It's in the Talmud. It's in early church history. It's a well-established fact that Jesus dies on Friday. Now, we're going to follow the timeline according to the Gospel of John. And you can ask me later. That's, a, that's a, for those that want to do deep study. Come ask me later why I'm following that timeline and not other timelines. Uh, there's good reason for it. But we're going to follow one in John. The actual day of Friday that he died would be the 14th. Okay, the 14th. Now, catch this. John tells us very clearly, here it is, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was born, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. So Jesus, John tells us six days, which if you take 14, I know this is high math. If you take 14 and minus six, that equals eight. This is the eighth day of the month, okay? On the eighth day of the month, he's having a Sabbath dinner with Mary, uh, with Mary Martha, and Lazarus. Here he is, Sabbath dinner, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the eighth day. Okay, so they, they serve dinner. Now it tells us, John tells us the very next day. So eight plus one equals, wow, so you're all awake this morning. Look at that. It's ninth. That's right, the ninth. It's now the ninth, okay? And, and he tells us what? It says the next day on the ninth, Jesus begins his triumphant ride into Jerusalem. Here it is in John 12. The next day a large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The next day. So they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, and just as, as written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, all four of the Gospels record this event. All four of the Gospels talk about this prophecy from Zechariah. All four of the Gospels mention the, the, these, these phrases from the Psalms. What's going on here? What's this scene? This is Palm Sunday. The people have recognized their king has come. Jesus is coming in triumphantly. He's riding in, and they're taking their coats off. You can look this up later. That, that this is an Old Testament practice. They would put their garments down before kings when they would come into town. They're doing the same with palms. Palms remind us of Sukkot as well, when they wave the palms before the Lord and declaring that he is king in their midst. All of this is going on. They see it, and they're cr crying out these psalms, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. Save us. King Jesus, son of David. They're declaring this as he's riding in. Now, they're doing all this in the context of a prophecy. They're using a pro there are multiple prophecies. We're just going to look at one. Uh, this is Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. So Zechariah is saying, your king is coming. He's righteous. He's bringing salvation. And then he says what? He's humble. He's mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on a foal of a donkey. He's coming victorious, but he's coming humble. Hmm. Hmm. And then Zechariah says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Notice, the king's not coming riding on a chariot. The king's not coming riding on a war horse. He's coming victorious on a donkey. Hmm. And the battle bow will be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He's not going to be coming carrying a battle bow. 
He's not going to be coming seeking to take the sword and conquer the lands. He's bringing peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth, and, and for you also because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is just one small part of this poem. It's, in set, it's set in a greater poem. Again, something else to go study another time. But what do we take from just this little bit that the, that the people are crying out? He's a king. He's come. He's righteous. He's bringing salvation. He's humble. He doesn't ride on a chariot. He doesn't ride on a war horse. He doesn't conquer with a battle bow. He speaks peace to the nations. He rules from sea to sea to the end of the earth. It's his blood that sets us free from our prison of sin and death. He comes to conquer the human heart. And Mark 11 tells us this. As he enters into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. And when he went out to Bethany, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, if anybody here knows the, understands the Bible and how the day is accounted. Does anybody know when the day begins in the Bible? In the evening, sunset. He enters the temple and it's what? It's late. It's evening. It's the next day. What day was it before? The ninth. What day is it now? The tenth. Jesus has entered into the temple on the tenth of Aviv. God has chosen his lamb. In this context, if this is the Lamb of God, he has to be spotless. He has to be pure. They, the, in Israel, you would take your lamb and you would bring it into your house. And for four days, you're examining their lamb. Is there something wrong with this lamb? We need to test this lamb and make sure it's ready to be the peace lamb. And not only do we do that, we do something else. We go throughout the house and we look for all the leaven in the house. Because this is the feast of unleavened bread. And we remove all the leaven. There's an old tradition that says you take a candle and a feather and a spoon. And you work to every corner with that candle, with that light. Sweeping up any little bit of leaven you can find to get it out of the house. Because it's Passover. We want no leaven. So these are the two requirements that have to be met. Jesus first must be the, as the Passover land must be spotless. And what does the Gospels tell us? The Gospels tell us that the leaders of the day put Jesus to the test in Holy Week. They want to see, is he spotless? And number two, all leaven has to be removed from the house. It's, it's not only Passover, it's the feast of unleavened bread. And here it is in, in Exodus. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leaven from the first day until the seventh, that person is cut off from Israel. Now Paul reminds us something. He reminds us that Christ is our Passover lamb. And that we're to cleanse that leaven out of our lives every day. Because he's every day our Passover lamb. Check this out in Corinthians. Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. How do you like that? Paul called you a lump. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a lump. <laughs> 
as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival. Let us remember the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus comes to cleanse the leaven. Jesus comes to conquer the human heart. Amen? And so Jesus enters the temple, and he drives out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in temple, and he healed them. Jesus is cleaning the leaven out of the house of God. And that's what causes the leaders to come and challenge him. By what authority do you do this? How do you do that? Where does your authority come from? And they begin to test him as the Lamb of God. Now, these next four questions, four tests that he gives are tests, three of them are tests to Jesus, and then Jesus turns the table and tests them. But I would submit to you they're also tests to us. As we listen to these, let us ask if there's leaven in our own hearts. Amen? So here's the four questions. The first is a legal question. A legal, it's a question of, of halakha. How do we keep? Uh, can we keep this right? How do we live out? The second question is what's called a vulgar question. Now, what do you mean by vulgar? It's a common question. What does that mean? To take something that has a holy and special purpose and to use it for other than its purpose, you just made it common. You just made it vulgar. And so this is the type of question That is out there to try to question your faith, to try to question your belief, to try to challenge you to take that which is set apart and special and try to make it common. The third question is a principle of conduct. How do we behave? How do we live? And finally, the fourth question is a narrative question. It's interpreting. It's understanding the text. What does the text mean? Because Jesus leads us into all truth. All right, so the first one. What is it? Is it lawful to pay taxes for Caesar? Oh, I wish he answered this different. Just about this time of year, I'm really wishing he answered this different. Every year. So they said to him, it's Mark 12, they sent him to some of the Pharisees and, and some of the Herodians. They sent, so let me start again. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Okay, right away, we should be going, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on? Anytime the Pharisees and the Herodians get together, this is not good. They hate each other. They hate each other. And they've come together. They've figured out a way to trap Jesus between them from their separate worldviews and the way they come from. And they came and they said, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Well, that's actually true. He really didn't care about their opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. You hear they're trying to butter him up, and he's going, yeah, you're absolutely right so far. So, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They think they have the trapping question. Michael Ramston shares the story that when he was a kid, he thought he had the perfect trapping question. He said, this is the perfect question, right? He said he would go around and ask all his friends, does your mother know that you're ugly? No, oh, so she doesn't know you're ugly. Yes, oh, she thinks you're ugly, you know. (laughs) He thought it was the perfect question. It 
was meant to trap. That's what they've just done here. You see, the Pharisees are going to say, if he says it's not legal to pay, I mean, it is legal to pay taxes, he can't be the Messiah. He's on the side of Rome. The Herodians say, because they loved Rome, if he says it is not legal, oh, we'll have him arrested and done away with because he's now standing against Rome. That's why the Pharisees and Herodians came together to do this question. So they would have a witness to testify for their own positions to get rid of him. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarii and let me look at it. Or a denarius. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are that are to God's. And they marveled. And why they are hypocrites is very simple. Because if they actually wanted to know the truth, they wouldn't simply be marveling. They would be filled with another extremely important question. If they really wanted to dive in and go, okay, Lord, you're the one who has all truth, they would be asking another question. They wouldn't have just left it there like they were trapped and didn't have an answer. What's the question they would have been asking? And I hope it's the question every one of us are asking. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are to God's. They should have asked, well, what belongs to God? We know what belongs to Caesar. What belongs to God? And Jesus would have said, whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? If we're cleaning out the leaven of our hearts, do we realize that we are created in the image of God and we belong to him? Have we rendered our lives to him? Brings us to the next question. This is a common question, a vulgar question. It's meant to ridicule, to question belief. In Hebrew, it's called a barut. The question is, whose wife is she? Whose wife is she? And it's a technical question that has to do with the law. Under the, they were super concerned about inheritance, and they had good reason to be in the land of Israel. And so they wanted to make sure inheritance was passed down. And so they had this law. This law was that if you died and didn't have a, 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 a child to inherit, then, uh, then your wife was to marry the next of kin to bring uh, to inherit that land. It's what the book of Ruth is all about. If you want to see a beautiful story about it, go check out the book of Ruth. All right, in that context, you have the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are bringing up this question because the Sadducees, they didn't believe in resurrection. They believed that only the Torah was Scripture. They didn't believe the prophets in writing were Scripture. They didn't believe in angels and spiritual, and spiritual things other than that God existed. So uh, they, they were very much all about living life in this world. And so they didn't believe in a resurrection. They thought, we have the ultimate question to defeat Jesus on resurrection, why resurrection is not possible. And this is what they say. They came to him and they said, who, uh, um, came to him, who say there is no re- resurrection, the Sadducees, and they asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, that man must take the widow and raise up offspring for her brother. Well, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And and the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. Now, teacher, in the resurrection, 
since we all know there's not a resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For she had for for the seven had her as a wife. Oh, we've stumped Jesus now. We got the ultimate question. Anybody here like, oh, if God is all powerful, can he make a rock so big not even he can lift? Oh, I got you now. Can't be a God. Jesus answers it very simply. When I find my places, very simply. In the resurrection, when they uh, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. The reason why you don't, you're wrong is you don't know the scriptures. If you knew the scriptures, you wouldn't be asking this question. Neither do you know the power of God. You have misinterpreted and misunderstood the power of God. Is God so big he, he can't make a rock that he can lift? You, you don't understand what omnipotence is. Omnipotence doesn't mean God can do anything. Can God lie? God, it means that God is sovereign and his will will come to pass. You can challenge it all you want, but unless you know the scriptures in his power, you will come up face to face against it. So Jesus asks him. He goes on and he says, For when they rise from the dead, neither will they marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels. For as the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? He's talking about the burning bush. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. You are quite wrong. He's saying, listen, hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived, God speaks out of the bush and says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of, uh, of Isaac. If he's the God of I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's the God of the living, they can't be dead in the sense they mean. You don't understand the scriptures. So if we're cleaning out the, le- the leaven, if we're looking in our hearts, let me ask us a question. How well do we know the scriptures? And the power of God. Are the scriptures a part of our lives? Jesus said, and the scriptures themselves say, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let me ask a question. How many of us would go a week without food? How many of us would go a week without the Bible? Would we do without food the way we do without the Bible and yet sit here and believe That God's word is our food. How about the power of God? Do we deny the power of God? I don't deny the power of God. God can do anything. I believe in God. Well, do we deny it by our actions, not simply our words and what we say? Well, what do you mean by my actions? I mean, I'm a good person. Well, how's your prayer life? We just spent three weeks talking about prayer. How many of us have changed our prayer life? I mean, I actually believe that when we call upon the Lord, he hears us and desires to answer. I mean, it's what he says in his word. Do we act our trust? Do we live our trust? Take a moment and clean the leaven out of our hearts. All right, question number three is a question of conduct. How do we behave? And so this question is this, is what is the most important commandment? 
What's the most important commandment? And one of the scribes came up, this is in, in verse 28 of Mark 12, came up and heard them disputing one another, and seeing that he answered well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, the way Mark presents this, this guy actually wants to know. Lord, what's the most important commandment? I, I want to know. And Jesus answered, the most important, and he quotes Deuteronomy, quotes what's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, what's fascinating about this is the way that it's recorded for us, he actually adds two things, strength and mind to the end of that. If you go back to the Hebrew, it only says strength. Why? Because the Hebrew word there is me'od. And what it means, it means all of your everything, all of your earthly goods, everything you own, everything that makes you who you are. It's not simply that I strenuously love him. It's that I have literally given everything into him in my love. And it says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said he is one. And there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, nobody else dared to ask them the questions. If we're cleaning out the leaven, do we genuinely, how many of us, if we saw Jesus, would want to know what's the most important commandment for us? Many of that's our pressing question right now. Jesus, what's the most important commandment for us? How many are sitting there wanting to serve Jesus like that? How many are pressing to know of everything, everything in the Bible, everything there is in life, everything, what is it that's most important you want for me? Do we really want to serve God with our whole being? Have we made the decision that our lives belong to him? Are we giving him lip service? Or are we embracing him with diligence, with perseverance, with character, with our soul? Are we willing to give him everything, our possessions, our time, our strength, our sustenance? How do we look at our neighbor? Is our neighbor more important than us? We put the needs of others first. Because Jesus says, now you're not far from the kingdom of God. And finally, Jesus turns the table on them, and there's a fourth question. It's a narrative interpretation question. It's trying to understand the text. How many know sometimes you open the Bible and there's these texts? It's like, ah, that's weird, Lord. I don't know what that means. Well, he's about to do this, right? Because they're expecting the king to be from a line of David. There's a, da there's a son of David, okay? So they're looking for a human king that is a descendant of David. And Jesus turns the table on the identity of who they're looking for. And this is what it says. And Jesus taught in the temple, and he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And, of course, everybody's sitting there going, Well, of course, everybody knows he's the son of David. I mean, okay, Lord, why are you asking us this? But he goes on and he says this, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and this is quoting from the Psalms, Yahweh said to my master, to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him master, Lord, 
Adonai. So how is he his son? A father would never call his son master and Lord. Much less a descendant way down the line. And they all were greatly wondering what he's meaning. So let me ask you, what do you call Jesus? Do you call him Lord and Master? Is he the reason you're alive? Or is he there for your life? Is Jesus the one you serve? Or are you looking for a Jesus to serve you? What's the leaven? going to prepare for communion. This is the time to prepare for communion. This is a divine appointment right now. God keeps his divine appointments. We've seen with perfect precision that Jesus is the Passover lamb, chosen on the 10th, tested, removing of leaven. Wednesday night we'll talk about it some more, Friday night we'll talk about it some more. But he came to remove that leaven from our lives. He didn't come to conquer land. He came to conquer the human heart, your heart, my heart. He came to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. As we enter into this appointed time for communion right now, let's close our eyes, bow our heads, and take some moment to ask ourselves these questions about the leaven that Jesus wants to remove by his grace, by his blood. Are our lives rendered unto God? Do we consume the scriptures as food for our soul? Do we embrace and act on the power of God in our lives? Is God our everything? Are we in right relationship with our neighbor? Is Jesus our Lord? Is he the one whom we're alive to serve? Or did he just come to serve us?